Hey, hey, water cool lands. Welcome back to the only show listening in to your exact words, creating a database of your information to sell to the highest bit. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Listening into the fact that I heard and delivered on the topic you wanted the show to most discuss, AI. You loved as we briefly touched upon that topic in our conversation with Leah in our last episode, and you set the emails, the DMs to voice your opinion, and it's here. Shower me in praise. I don't mind. <laughs> of course. If you want to continue to voice that opinion, DM the show on Instagram at watercoolertalkpod or go a bit more old school and email us at watercoolertalkpod at gmail.com. But today we are honored to be joined by John Basil, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Northeastern University and Associate Director of the Northeastern Ethics Institute to discuss the ins and outs of AI, the ethics behind AI, the need for an ethics ecosystem before we jump too far into the future, and of course, the most heated debate that will ever exist and no question asked, oatmeal raisin cookies are kind of good. Don't lie. Don't lie to me, listeners. Do not lie to me. So to spread a little symbolism in today's introduction, I thought it would be only right to match the speed of this opener with the speed of advancement we've seen in the AI space and just jump right into the episode. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to episode 80 of Water Cooler Talk podcast titled Ask GPT with... John Basil. Enjoy. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. Uh, this could be an entire podcast. So the way to think about grind size is, I mean, it affects a lot of things. But the smaller your grind particles are, the easier it is to extract things from it. Mm. So you just have you just more water hits more of the stuff and pulls more stuff out. That's the easy way to think about it. Um, of course, then it can also clog things so it can slow down. It also slows down your brew. So you want to pick the right grind size for your brewing parameter, but you want to go a little bit tighter if you're not getting enough sort of sweetness or your coffee's taking a bit sour and you want to go a bit coarser if, it, if it's uh, tasting a little too acidic and you want to ease off that a little bit. So go a little coarser. You know, the interesting thing is I worked at Caribou here, which is, I mean, I'm sure you know Caribou yeah, in yeah. Wisconsin, but I worked there for six months and they, they never told us any of this. They were just like, just figure it out. Just figure it out. <laughs> well, that's very reassuring about where I'm going to go to get my uh, morning coffee. Um, <laughs> as far as time, you know, yeah, you should grind roughly right before within five minutes of when you brew. I mean, that's probably, probably too conservative, but the night before is way too soon to grind your coffee. Although if you need, you know, you need to wake up to caffeine, I get it, but you will <laughs> lose some of the, the good stuff. What, what's a more interesting group to be a part of the coffee enthusiast or the, the AI enthusiast? Oh, that's a good question. There's, there's some, but way less controversy and acrimony and fighting within the coffee community than there is <laughs> among the AI community. I mean, man, I know some coffee people who will rip your throat out if you're, you don't got a certain bean. You, I mean, now, you know, it's the size of the, the grinds. I mean, it's Ooh. true. There's there's adherence and there's fights, but man, the AI fights and there's also just the consequences of getting it wrong in coffee is a rough morning and the consequences of getting it wrong in the AI space is a, a lot scarier. <laughs> it's true. I just I just actually read this tweet. It said uh, humans doing the hard jobs on minimum wage while the robots write poetry and paint is not the future I wanted. So uh, <laughs> you, you don't get that with coffee. That's right. All right, John, are you ready to jump into our first conversation here? You bet. 
This is from restoftheworld.org, Labor Africa, written by Martin K. N. Seeley, April 21st, 2023. AI is taking the jobs of Kenyans who write essays for U.S. college students. For the past nine years, a freelance writer corresponding as Collins has been making between $900 to $1,200 a month by writing academic assignments for students in the U.S. Known as the contract cheating industry, Collins, as a third party, writes college essays on topics such as psychology, sociology, and economics, and some clients even grant him direct access, well interesting, to their college portals to submit tests, assignments, and participate in class discussions. Lately, however, his earnings have been diminished to half the normal totals due to the astronomical rise of language model tools such as OpenAI's ChatGPT and similar artificial intelligence tools. In January, online learning platform Study surveyed more than 1,000 students and over 100 educators. Over 89% of students said they've used ChatGPT to help with homework. Nearly half admitted to using ChatGPT for home tests. 53% used it to write essays. And 22% used it to build essay outlines. However, the survey did find that 72% of students think ChatGPT should be banned on college campuses. Uh, and then just for transparency, study.com claims to help over 30 million students and educators a month. So these obviously these results do come from a small sample size that may have some bias. Uh, Collins now fears the rapid rise of AI could significantly reduce students' reliance on these services freelancers like himself provide. Uh, while 17, sta 17 states in the U.S. have banned contract cheating, countries like Kenya, which account for 1% of the world's online freelance workforce, ranking 15th overall, depend on this type of work to secure a roof over their head and put food on the table. John Kamau, who has offered similar services since 2014, disagrees with Collins. He states... Work will still be there because even editing AI-generated text to avoid detection takes a lot of time and effort. I don't think it's simple as saying with AI, students in the U.S. will be able to do the assignments themselves. Academic writers will still have their work, but it will have a positive effect on writers who can collaborate with ChatGPT and use it as a guide. So far, higher education institutions in the U.S. have avoided outright bans on the use of ChatGPT. Instead, colleges, including Yale University, I took one class there, so I consider myself a Ivy League grad, uh, have issued guidelines and recommendations for staff on the use of AI, leaving it to teachers to decide how ChatGPT will be used in their classrooms. Ethan Molick, associate professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School, states, The truth is... I probably couldn't have stopped them even if I didn't require it. So, John, obviously you're in the academic space. What has been, I just kind of want to get a baseline here, but what has been your relationship within academia and in the classroom on both sides as the instructor, you know, giving assignments and as the instructor grading assignments as learning language models such as ChatGPT have skyrocketed in use in the past year or so? I mean, really, you can go back a few years ago to the availability of uh, GPT-3 and the hype around its abilities at that time. The biggest impact for me has definitely been on my email inbox and the number of requests to comment on <laughs> the ethics of ChatGPT uh -huh. in education yep. or whatever. No, I appreciate you doing it, uh, yeah. responding to me. Uh, well, yeah, of course. No, I think it's important. Um, so I, the impact on... I have so many thoughts about the relationship between large language models, generative AI, and education, and more broadly. But the impact on me has been very low, but that's partly because... I'm in an extremely advantageous position as a professor. I teach very small classes, under 30 usually. I have students that are not content to get a C. They, they want an A. Currently, the large language models are just not good enough to get them an A, especially given the, the very tailored 
kinds of assignments I give, which are meant to develop a very core set of skills. They're highly artificial. I grade them in a really kind of annoying, weird way. And so I've run my assignments through ChatGPT. It stinks at doing them correctly. If a student were to use ChatGPT and they wanted to get it to succeed at my assignments, they would have to know how to do my assignments to the point where I'm like, thumbs up, you know what I care about. So I don't care how you got there. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, the impact has been so minimal. And I think that's true for a lot of my colleagues who are always thinking about teaching innovations and and how to appeal to different learning modalities and moving away from pure writing assignment assessment or having write assignment writing assignments that are structured in very particular ways. So the impact on me personally has been minimal, but on other colleagues, it's it's very it's different. Um, so I, I see a lots of other impacts that are more worrisome and challenges to meet. But my own view is that in almost every case, like to the extent that ChatGPT is causing problems in academia, it's just exacerbating existing challenges. Like, Yeah, I, I think that's very true. I mean, obviously, we're two people that are aware of the space and kind of aware of the language. And it does have a very, at least uh, what it is now, I haven't really gotten into like GPT-4 and kind of the advancement of it. But the language is very specific to an AI language model, you know, using these like just uh, re- like furthermore, additionally, like these things that in normal human conversation you're not using, but it's trying to use all of this data it's kind of collected to create this ideal language, which is not familiar. It's the uncanny valley of language right now. And I think a lot of teachers, at least at the collegiate level, can pick up on that. But I do, uh, there's a lot of stories that coming out, especially within the high school realms of teachers actually using ChatGPT or the AI checkers to check assignments and getting wrong answers. I mean, I've seen the post of people putting the constitution into these (laughs) AI checkers and it's coming back is flagging of ChatGPT wrote the constitution, which I mean, unless I don't know (laughs) something, (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's not right. Um, But there's become, I think this reliance maybe on, um, education levels below college where, you know, critical thinking isn't as important. We're teaching to these standardized testing that uh, language models have become this issue. But as you said, I think it's exasperating already their issues. I mean, kids have been cheating since the dawn of education. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think higher, I think, you know, K through 12 is a harder case than college, but even college, when you have an adjunct faculty member teaching 500 students, it's hard for them to tailor assignments in a way that they can sort of present, prevent gaming and high school teachers. You're right. There's a huge incentive to teach towards the test. Many schools are under-resourced and understaffed. They, teachers are often paid not enough to make it worth trying to do all the work necessary to combat cheating. Um, and ChatGPT just makes cheating more accessible. Like the one thing I'll say about teaching at an elite private institution is I already know that there are cheaters. They were already paying paper mills like the one discussed in the story mm-hmm. to write their essays. Those are better than ChatGPT in terms of content, but not not by a lot. I mean, <laughs> ChatGPT and these other and a lot of people, they write like what a high school senior thinks a philosophy essay is going to read like that's how yes, the chat that's exactly. like whatever it's training <laughs> regime is it writes like you know it'll start every paper with since the dawn of time people have been arguing about and it's like no philosopher wants to hear that since this <laughs> falsehood that since the dawn of time so i don't know yeah it's 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 it is a problem but it's a socio-technical problem it's that we need more resources in teaching we need to think carefully about how we teach another thing is that we even at the higher education level people have come to see college as a credentialing activity. And so all that matters is the degree. Mm -hmm. So for me, just having an honest conversation about like, here's what the skills you're learning in my class. Here's why they'll be valuable to you, not just in your career, but in your personal life and making a case for the point of education being more than just credentials. But you know, it's, it's 
part of becoming a citizen and a person. Um, and so the assignments I designed are to help you do that. And if you don't take those seriously, I'm, I, I tend not to want to be a police officer. So No, I do think uh, a lot of people that decide to go to those higher educations, to go to college, to get degrees, they're going because, I mean, they want to at least hopefully expand their mind, think critically. And you can't do that if you're just using uh, uh, hiring someone to do your homework. I mean, it does happen because I think, you know, especially in the U.S., we put a lot of pressure on having a degree. I don't have a degree and it's a lot harder to get a job, yep. even though I have 10 times the relevant experience of someone with a degree. And so I do think there's a lot of pressure on people just to get a degree. And maybe that has played into the aspect of cheating and uh, using ChatGPT and other language models tools to pass tests. And But obviously, I mean, it becomes harder when you go up, you know, to the 200, 300, 400. I don't know. I, I didn't graduate college, so I don't know how it goes. But, <laughs> you know, yeah, obviously, it's easy when it's those 100 classes and those introductory classes, because it is a lot of people. I mean, my intro to philosophy class was 300 people in, you know, the lecture hall. So it's like, yeah, the teacher has multiple classes like that. I get it. Sometimes you just don't have the time. And I, I look at these ang uh, these language model tools as tools. I mean, that's how I see it. And that's how I think it should be used. Yeah. Um, but it's really interesting. I mean, you know, there was a few like discussions here on the study from educators. One said, you know, I don't think banning it will stop cheating. Obviously, what we've been talking about, I think it creates an opportunity to have discussions with students about why we ask them to do assignments and how cheating won't benefit them. Here's an oh, don't know how this one got in here, John, but it says, John is one of the most caring professors at Northeastern. He really wants to see you succeed. He explains difficult topics well, and he gives great feedback on assignments. He's the hardest grader I've ever had, but he's really helpful at office hours. This is my favorite part. His lectures are very engaging. He's funny, and he's pretty good looking, too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that got that one got in there, John. <laughs> I did not write that. He, you did slip me a ten dollar bill earlier. Yeah, that's true. Uh, fair, fair. But here's another one. I think ChatGPT, Chat GPT, is a crutch that will prevent students from actually needing to learn content. Um, and this kind of goes into my next question. Although I can see it's used for small tasks like how to email a teacher with questions, it also prevents students from developing the soft skills those small tasks allow. It hampers our ability to uh, assess what the student truly knows. And I kind of want to get into this conversation uh, about the importance of that you find in the context and genuine experience of obtaining knowledge and actually understanding the concepts instead of just, you know, using a contract cheating, hiring someone from Kenya, using ChatGPT, another language tool that... Uh, for example, you know, you want to write an essay on the importance of the grind amount of coffee beans and you have uh, somebody hired from Kenya to write it and you turn in that essay. I mean, you didn't really learn that content. Right. Yeah. So I do think it's important that students learn even how to sort of take in knowledge about sort of what we might call trivia knowledge. Like everyone just sort of says, why do I have to memorize this? I could just Google it. Um, I do think that's learning facts like that is an important skill. I'm glad that I can offload that to other colleagues that do that in their classrooms. Um, like I know that in organic chemistry, people are learning to memorize. So I don't have to think about that, even though I do think it's a core skill, not just for most of the jobs that students might take up, but just for being a, a, a person and citizen in relationships with people like remembering facts about those people you work with so you can have good relationships with them, being able to think critically about things so you can make careful choices. So I do think it's um I do think there is value to like learning that kind of knowledge, but I do think we can structure educational opportunities in ways that build those skills. Um, even if it does mean that 
it doesn't happen anymore in particular kinds of classes. It just means being an imaginative educator and thinking about how do we restructure things? How do we supply resources in the right kinds of cases um, in the right sorts of ways to get the outcomes we want? I know pretty much everybody's been told about this, probably not the newer generation that I'm thinking about it, but, you know, being in math class and your teacher saying, well, you know, you're not going to have a calculator in your pocket. Yeah. And then now we have literally the world in our pocket. But I do think there was importance in that phrasing because, sure, we can tell a calculator one plus one and it'll tell us two but if we don't really understand why one plus one equals two it doesn't matter what the calculator tells us because we're not going to be able to understand the application of it and i i always see technology in the world you know the world grows with technology or it leaves it behind i mean you know we see what the the smartphone has done and as uh, the world has grown with the smartphone whether that be good or bad in your opinion uh then we have other technology i mean like uh the segway right you know, that was groundbreaking technology and then yeah. nothing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I think we'd be less concerned about and this again, getting back to the theme of these the problems raised by ChatGPT are broader socio-technical concerns. Um, we'd be a lot less concerned about large language models if we had a really strong social safety net so that if these jobs were being lost. We had transition mechanisms to find people new and meaningful employment. I mean, the crisis is really that we don't. Mm -hmm. So uh, that that's like outside of the educational context. But in the educational context, what it means is that like, yeah, ChatGPT in some cases is going to make us rethink whether a particular thing was worth spending so much time in education teaching. And if it is worth teaching and, and we think there's too many students that are going to try to cheat using ChatGPT, how do we reorganize our educational experiences to accommodate that? I mean, it wasn't that long ago that everyone thought all of education was going to go online. Then there were going to be MOOCs for everything. And that was just the future of education. And we learned that a lot of our educational outcomes depend on close interactions with mm -hmm. people in small class formats and things like that. Well, I mean, and I mean, totally correct me if I'm wrong, you're much more, uh, much more experienced in this field than, than I, but am I failing myself to see, I mean, obviously these language models and AI as a tool, you know, I'll bet much smarter, but having the same impact or at least society's same reaction to say like the radio the tv um you know the internet where it's like wow this is going to change the world and it, it, it is but not in the negative way that people kind of have the uh the misconceptions of until it really is applicable in the real world yeah i i'm, I'm always very wary about making predictions about the impacts of these things it seems very clear that large language models are going to have a huge range of applications they're going to probably take away a bunch of jobs or or we're going to have to find ways to make sort of hybrid collaborative teams between large language models and people in all sorts of contexts. But I do think that it yeah, I do think the right way to think of it is as a as a tool. Um, I think we're doing kind of a well, we're doing kind of a bad job of that because there's so much misunderstanding about what it does. And, and like so one of the things in education is the more you know about how the large language model works the less afraid of it you are because you know the ways it's going to make mistakes. Well, it's like, I see it as like a sexier version of like, I don't know if you remember Ask Jeeves. Yeah, yeah, of course. Where you just ask it a question and it gives you the answer. It's like a sec, it, to me, it seems like a sexier version of Ask Jeeves. Yeah, it, it mean, except it's a bullshitter in a way that Jeeves wasn't. Good like point, Jeeves basically point. like, if it pulled something from the web and said something, it was true. Whereas this is just mm -hmm. basically saying like, here's some text that reads like a real human sentence, um, whether or not it's true or not. I mean, I don't know if you saw that, like when Bard got released, like one of the main things in the advertisement was a false claim Yep, about the telescope. Yeah, exactly. About the telescope. So it just generates it. So it's, it's like 
it, it is kind of like a sexy ass Jeeves when you ask certain things, like when you ask it to yes. make up a story or a piece of fiction, it's just a very fancy kind of much better version of ask Jeeves. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you want facts <laughs> or citations, uh, it's actually worse. Um, yeah. For listeners who don't know, uh, during the Bard uh, release by Google, obviously uh, OpenAI was so ahead of the game that, you know, they kind of rushed this, uh, this product that they've been working on, but they asked it, what took the first picture of a planet outside of our solar system, and it said the James Webb Telescope, and really it was the European Large Telescope, uh, I think in like 2004. Just to be safe, it was the European Very Large Telescope. But that's kind of what we're talking about there. But getting to, I mean, taking the jobs and like making up content right now, as we have this conversation, the Writers Guild of America is on strike for, you know, a multitude of reasons, specifically a main focus being related to fair compensation for streaming residuals. But another key demand that they're asking is the commitment from executives to refrain from using AI, chat GPT obviously being specifically mentioned, in the writer's room of TV and movies. And I truly do believe a part of the quote-unquote fear people have with AI AI outside of the lack of understanding, which I mean, we'll get to in that second news story, um, is the concern, obviously, as we've been talking of AI replacing jobs. Uh, You know, we're already witnessing real world examples, whether it be AI, you know, replacing the Wendy's drive through speaker or paying a dollar a minute to interact with uh, an AI reincarnation of a Snapchat influencer (laughs) instead of a real person. You know, obviously, these are ridiculous examples, uh, but companies and individuals, they're seeing the dollar signs that this can bring in for themselves. And I do think it's worth not totally writing off Collins from the story um, concerns, even if he does work in an unethical field, because, you know, even though I might not agree with his occupation and the students who use his service, I do agree that it's vital to always be pro-worker because, you know, if not today, tomorrow, it's going to be knocking on your door. And so it gets to this question I want to pass along and kind of I posed to you earlier, you know, what's the level of concern we should have about the responsible use of new and emerging AI technologies and specifically in the the realm of job creation and what's going on with the WGA? Very, very high level of concern for managing these problems. Like we're doing a really bad job and I have a view about what why that is in part. I'm happy to talk about that, too. But. Yeah, the writer strike case is a nice contrast to the um, cheating case because it's like you're like you said before, it's like they're both they're putting both kinds of writers out of a job or diminishing. They could diminish their their employment. In one case, we think it's an unethical industry and the other one we plausibly don't. Mm-hmm. So it's a nice contrast class. And like in the writer strike case, I think it's a, a completely reasonable demand that the writers have to ban the use of of. AI or come up with some strict regulations on the use of AI. I mean, there's a certain sense in which there may be beautiful art to be made when artists themselves, like writers, yep. bounce ideas back off. Which well, you yeah, it's see. like, you know, AI doesn't know um, heartbreak, at least not yet. You know, it doesn't know uh, what it means to be a broken human that I think creates great art. Until it gets to that point, yeah, I, I very much believe what you're saying. And to your point about bouncing ideas. I mean, that's what I do. I use a, I use ChatGPT as a, a way to bounce ideas off of and kind of see things from a, a slightly different perspective because sometimes you kind of get lost in your own thoughts and you're like, oh yeah, I'm smart as shit. You know, you kind of trick uh, AI into saying, hey, be a very tough grader of my jokes and you realize, oh yeah, maybe my jokes aren't as funny yeah, yeah, as exactly, I think yeah. they are. That's a good use of it. I had, hadn't thought about that before, but yeah. So yeah. So 
I think in both industries, the workers are right to be concerned. I, I think in the cheating case, it's another one of these social issues where it's like, it's unfortunate that this industry exists. Yeah. It is true that people depend on this for their livelihood. It'd be really great if we had social infrastructure to transition them to new employment when they can't write, you know, mm-hmm. plausibly anything we do to combat large language models will also work against cheaters in general, except maybe uh, the AI detector tools, which I'm the most skeptical of, like the tools that are just going to tell us <laughs> if it's AI generated. Nothing scares me more than accusing a, a student of cheating with AI and them not being able to prove that they actually wrote it <laughs> when they did. Well, yeah. And that's what I mean. That's why I've been seeing a lot yeah. is, you know, these students specifically in college where it's a, a very serious issue, like you get expelled from college for, you know, plagiarism and cheating. It's like, how do you prove it? Like now, obviously through like Google docs, you can track, you know, the, the changes you make and everything like that. But it's like, that's something that you shouldn't have to think about. You shouldn't have to think about, you know, in the case of the writer's guild of America, you shouldn't have to think about like, wow, my experiences don't matter as much because executives don't really give a shit. They just care about what the bottom line looks like. And so, you know, these are the moments that yes, the writer's guild of America strike is about, you know, these bigger things and streaming residuals. I mean, these shows are getting millions upon millions of views and writers are getting like five bucks. But, you know, as we've been kind of talking about, like this is whole bigger than just, oh, there's this really smart AI language model tool that's kind of changing the game. It's yeah, it's exasperating these issues that have already been here. It's a part of society now. It's a part of the zeitgeist. And we have to be aware of its impact on things other than just, you know, what we think it's going to impact. It's not this is not a sci fi movie anymore. Yeah. This is reality. I think that's right. So one of I have this like standard talk that I, I give all the time now about why we keep falling on our face in the AI space. Like you can like in any three month period, you could come up with a 50 news headlines that are just basically repeats of the same failures that were three months before that. And the thing I always say is that, um, in every other area where we do even a halfway decent job of managing ethical issues in some domain, like say take medicine and medical research or the military or anything like that, we have what I call an ethics ecosystem, which is a bunch of, of parts that collaboratively distribute the task of managing the ethical issues. It involves enculturating practitioners. So doctors are trained early on into an ethical code of conduct. That code of contact was thought about by people with a rich understanding of the conceptual issues that then translated it to interdisciplinary scholars. Lawmakers have laws and regulations that sort of enforce people following these things. And we don't have any of that in the AI space. Like sometimes there's overlap with other existing legal infrastructure, but we just don't have that kind of robust ecosystem to help us manage these issues. And so right now it's basically every person has to try to manage these issues on their own. When I, when I work with companies or talk to individuals that want to do something, I'm like, yeah, unfortunately you have to do from from bottom to top, you have to think through all the ethical challenges. You have to think about how to implement safeguards and things like that. And that's not a reasonable ask for your average computer scientist or your average citizen. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just not fair, but we don't have the resources. We don't have that ecosystem in place and the tools we've developed for other ecosystems that we've tried to import to help us. They are just not built for the task. And so they, we fall on our faces when we use them too. Yeah. And I do want to talk more about this ethics ecosystem that you've kind of mentioned uh, prior in the second story, but to kind of wrap up this story, you know, I had a chance to, I was just looking back at my very first episode of this podcast I released five years ago. And we talked about uh, Flippy, the burger flipping robot. He was doing like two, I think it was either 2000 or 20,000. It was 2,000 burgers a day. Uh, burgers a day he ended up having to go on break because it was too much. And now I think they've developed a new Flippy uh, Flippy 2 that just flips um, fries. Uh, but that was five years ago. And at that time, people were saying, okay, fry cooks and, you know, McDonald's is, you know, taking 
taking your jobs away to replace you with this robot. And, you know, now five years later, it still hasn't happened. Yeah, right. You know, I think the, uh, the, the fry flipping robot, it costs $3,000 a month. I mean, that's a lot more than, you know, what it would cost to pay two, three fry cooks to make those same fries at McDonald's. So until that number changes, McDonald's is still going to pay people. I mean, children at this point, I just heard about those stories in Kentucky with 14, 15 year olds working at McDonald's. Um, but obviously, you know, there's, you know, another economical impact of having children having to work. But until this technology and the same thing with, you know, environmental and green technology, until that technology is cheaper than the the minimum, I'm not too worried, but I know the future is coming and I know it's going to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Just like, what's the thing where like you make chips and um, they said there's going to be only so many connections and then they're finding that they can make more and more and more connections. Yeah, Moore's Law. Yes, yes, that. So it's like, yeah, at the beginning, we're like, oh, we can't do that. And now we're finding out we can do that. So yes, the future is coming. I do understand that. But for the time being... Uh, I think we really have to, and as I kind of want to talk about later, we really have to develop the groundworks of what those ethics look like. Yeah, I couldn't couldn't agree more. And, you know, a nice, nice recent example is, I don't know, the number of people asking me to think about the ethics of NFTs and the metaverse <laughs> a year and a half ago was a lot higher than it is uh-huh. today. I remember we got so many requests to talk about NFTs and we covered it. And then like a month later, it was nothing. Yeah. That's that's how technology works, I guess. Yeah. I would like to welcome to the show John Basil. John is an associate professor of philosophy at Northeastern University in Boston and associate director of the Northeastern Ethics Institute. His expertise lies in applied ethics, specifically focusing on the ethics of AI, emerging technologies, and environmental ethics. John, welcome to Water Cooler Talk. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so right off the bat, you know, the question of the day, the question that people want to know, get the air cleared, change up some of the behavior if you need to change it up. Should we be saying please and thank you to these AI and AI language model tools? But but more importantly, how should we consider the ethical risk to AI if we do mistreat them, if we treat them like they are Dolores from Westworld when really they're not even close to that level of complexity? I mean, you know, the best example is the the criticism of that robot Sophia who gains his, uh, citizenship in Saudi Arabia in 2017. I mean, that main criticism being she's basically just a chat box with a face. I mean, does she understand kind of the expressions she's giving or is she just saying, hey, have a smile because you total joke? Yeah, this is a good question. Should you please say please or thank you? Uh, that's, I don't know. I, that, that, I mean, that you tell you made that, that was like a sort of, um, less serious segue, but I actually think there's an interesting question there about like, what are the tools we use to train manners in ourselves and our children? Mm-hmm. And like, you know, Immanuel Kant famously thought that animals didn't matter for their own sake, but you should treat them really well because it'll change how you treat other people. Uh, now I think he's wrong about the first thing, but I do think, yeah, we can probably use them as useful tools for, for, training, teaching our children. I think there's all sorts of room for like sort of AI therapy for again, this is a social problem. We don't have enough therapists or enough resources for people to seek therapy. And they, it turns out they can be really useful tools for people to engage empathetically with them and sort of sort out some problems. So we probably should say please or thank you. How far it goes beyond that. Just to, just to be safe. Yeah, just to be Well, always to be safe. Yeah. <laughs> yes, of uh, course. I often joke, joke that I write some papers that are about protecting AI, advanced AI, mostly so that when they take over, they'll, uh, they'll leave me alone. <laughs> Um, but the broader question about I, I di- there is a real challenge here. There's a certain sense in which I don't think any current AI are deserving of any ethical protections for their own sake. I mean, they're owned by people. They're, they're works of art in some cases. And so they deserve our respect in that regard, but not the way I owe you a kind of respect because of the kind of being you are or the way that it's, it would be wrong for me to kick a stray dog because of the kind of being that it is. 
I don't think any AI currently meet that standard, whatever it is that grounds that requirement in us to treat each other with a certain kind of respect. I don't think they satisfy it. But the really scary thing is if we did create something like Dolores or if we did create an AI that had the things that grounded that, it would be very hard for us to tell. Mm -hmm. The reason I know that I should be nice to you or that I shouldn't hurt you for fun is that you behave in certain ways. You're physiologically a lot like me and you're evolutionarily basically my brother. Mm -hmm. We exist on the same spot on the tree. So it'd be weird for me to think I have consciousness and can feel pain, but you couldn't. And we can make those inferences about other animals that are close to us on the tree of life. But the further away you get where the behaviors are different, where the physiology is different, it's a lot harder. And when it comes to AI, physiologically, totally unlike us. They're not on the tree of life and their behaviors are programmed to to be us, to make us think that they have these capacities. Yes. And so it, yes. it's not evidence. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's a it's a scary what we call epistemological challenge. Yeah, I thought, you know, something you really said was, you know, I'm nice to you, but I'm also nice to a book bag, but I'm not nice in the same way. Like if I drop a book bag on the floor, I don't really care too much about that. But if I drop a baby on the floor, there there's a whole hubbubaloo that needs to happen around that. And I, I do think people look at these language model tools as living beings in a way. Like I know a lot of the questions, there was a study that talked about like some of the more popular questions that are being asked to specifically chat GPT and Bard was, do you have consciousness? To ask that question just in the first hand, there has to be some inclination that you think that potentially that this system has some free thought when really, like you said, it's just researchers putting in a bunch of data into this machine learning tool, it, it, trying to find these connections, trying to find these algorithms and why and generate responses based on those algorithms. It's not free thinking in the way that I think people want it to be. Yeah, that's that's definitely my inclination. I mean, to be fair, here's the challenge. We have no idea how we got the things, the consciousness and the ability Good to point. understand. And so <laughs> it's like a bunch of, you know, a bunch of biological goop was smashing around the universe for a while. And then all of a sudden we can do this thing. And so that makes me a little scared about like, maybe we are just massive processing units. I don't tend to think that I think like the way these, I mean, if you really broke down like neuron links and how our brain works, it is basically a, a, a machine, but a biological machine. Yeah. And the thing we unfortunately don't know is whether you need a biological machine for consciousness. So, so I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's I, why we have religion, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's like, I think one of the hardest puzzles is like what makes what grounds consciousness. And th that's why every, there's no good theory of consciousness. Like every theory of consciousness makes you say weird things. Yeah. But yeah, my inclination is that these large language models aren't thinking, but we as humans are so prone to see agency and consciousness everywhere um, and meaning. And so it's not surprising to me that some people come to develop these views about these models it's, it's a little surprising to me when it's the engineers who built them because they know exactly how they're built. And it shouldn't really surprise them that if you ask it a sci-fi-ish question, it's going to pull from sci-fi-ish resources to yeah. give you a sci-fi-ish answer that sounds... But I do think like we want to be lost in that. I mean, growing up surrounded by movies, TV shows that talked about this. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Babylon 5. I don't know if you ever had the chance to see it, but it's like amazing show. But going to your point about like, how did we get here? I, I think that's a question that a lot of people really want the answer to. It's why we have, you know, like I said, religion and all these things, the question of why it's like, why we're so afraid of the the answer to what's out there in space. Is there anything out there or is there nothing? I mean, all these things terrify us, but they also excite us. It's like, you know, we're in our tiny little huts 
in the village and we see something in the woods and we're like, eh, I probably shouldn't go out there, but uh, I kind of want to go out there. And that's where, at least in my experience and kind of my opinion, it feels like these AI language model tools are at. It's like, we're kind of interested. We want it, even though we should know that it's not this thing, but we kind of want it to be this thing. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there's also probably like some people that it's like a self, they did, they prophesied that these things are coming. And so for them, like they did, yes, it's easier for them point. to see it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, some people are wrapped up in that kind of future. I mean, you know, I've heard people working in the VR, AR space tell me that like, the, I asked them like, well, what's the utopic vision for these technologies? And they'll say things like, well, ready player one. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's a dystopia. <laughs> but for them, the technology is what's uh -huh. driving them and, and like being it so being so immersive. So maybe if you're in the headspace like these engineers where you're like you're trying to build that future, it's easier for you to fall into the trap of seeing that future before it's here. Mm. Maybe. I, I, you know. Yeah, I know. I've t I know I've talked about this, you know, like the Star Wars versus Star Trek future. I mean, obviously, like depending on how what kind of future you want, that's the kind of future you're going to get. If you, you know, I'm a big believer, if you put it out to the universe, the universe is going to bring it right back to you, the law of attraction. So, yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that. But then also, you know, like another important ethical consideration of the machine learning AI process that I think is interesting is data collection, you know, which can introduce bias into the algorithm and impact results. Uh, if the team behind the project doesn't give the proper feedback and says, yeah, probably don't do that. Uh, but more so, I want to get into the ethical dilemma behind it, like the situation that happened with Target, uh, letting that woman know she was pregnant through Taylor ads. Uh, we discussed that on the podcast here before. But as you discuss in your Matrix Fall seminar series conversation, how do you address the ethical quandary when data collected from a consenting party is enough to infer and make assumptions about a non-consenting party. Yeah, that's. Uh, uh, I'm not going to give you an answer because it's it's uh, it's a. <laughs> I haven't. It's like a. Fair. As a it's philosopher, fair. what I want to do is like break off a piece of a puzzle, think about it for a decade, and then get back to you. Um, <laughs> and so this is a place where I recognize the problem. And but I think the broad answer to the. So I'll give you a broad answer, which is that mm -hmm. we have conceptions of privacy and rules for protecting privacy and ethical norms governing privacy that are fit for a very different purpose where protecting personal information of a consenting person was enough to basically adequately respond to the values we cared about. It protected their autonomy. It protected their freedom. Now it's not like that. And so we need to think, instead of thinking about privacy as me having control over my information, it's thinking about what can be done with information in general and how can that harm people other than me when I give you my information. And so we need a privacy that protects against invasive inference, as we might call it. Mm -hmm. Helen Nissenbaum has, you know, she's like the OG tech ethicist. She's been doing these things forever. She has a theory of privacy called the uh, contextual integrity approach, where we have to think about privacy about like different contexts, have different norms of information flow, and we need to be appropriately responsive to those flows of information. So like what's appropriate flow between me and my doctor is different from what's appropriate flow between me and target. And we should have different rules and different norms governing those different flows. And so we need to do something. I mean, this is the point about the ecosystem coming back, but we really need to think about that ecosystemically, how we're going to regulate it, what those norms are going to be, yeah. how we're going to enculturate responsiveness to them. Because in the target story, what was interesting is once the dad found out that the daughter was pregnant, he was not mad at target anymore. Mm, yeah. And so he was just like, well, since it was right, it didn't really, there wasn't a violation or something like that. It wasn't doing something offensive. And I'm like, well, no, no. Well, that's, I mean, I, I, I did get what you're saying. We had a previous episode where with Jake Teeny, where we talked about uh, Spotify patenting this, this technology where it can pick up on your voice if you're crying, kind of listen in, and then create a playlist for you. That was episode 65, Privacy Paradox. 
that's crazy to think about the invasion of privacy. But also, if Spotify can give me a playlist to make me feel better after I just, you know, maybe went through a breakup, am I giving up that data and that privacy to better my life? I mean, there's this there's this fine line that we're finding ourselves. I mean, I know you've talked about the the COVID tracker app by Apple and Google that people just did not want to get into. But when really it was this fantastic device, if you really looked into the actual the 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 use of it. But because we're so afraid of our privacy, which, by the way, most of your privacy is already out there. There's not much. Yeah, it's you paradoxical know. because we already give basically mm-hmm. all our information to Apple and Google. And so this is a kind of surprising thing not to give them their information about. But yeah. But yeah, it's so interesting how we're so, so afraid of giving up our privacy. But when it benefits us and makes my day easier, I'm more than willing. Do whatever you want with my data. I don't care. Yeah, I I, I definitely fall into that trap. Like I, I'm a Gmail user and I know they're getting all my data. Um, <laughs> the Spotify thing is interesting because like that is a tool that I find the thing that gets scary is when you understand that what else they're doing with that data, like once they're training an algorithm to be able to build a playlist to track your emotional states, that means they're able to track your emotional states and do other things that you would be. Yeah. So like a lot of times when we think about when we say these things like, oh, I don't really care if they have this data, we're just thinking about them using it to provide the service that we signed up for, like spam filtering and Gmail or whatever. But it's really the other stuff they're using it for that's like further from our consciousness. Well, yeah, it's like, how do you sell better to someone? I mean, you know, take Amazon's Alexa and yeah, sure. It doesn't turn on until it hears this certain keyword, but like when it comes to the tech space, trust and transparency is so vital to believing that it's like, do I believe, I mean, I'm not a computer scientist. I don't know how to code. I don't know how that stuff works to the degree that you would need to truly understand these devices. But do I trust Amazon enough? Do I trust Google enough? Do I trust Apple enough to trust them that they're not lying to me and they're not putting profit over ethics. Yeah, they probably almost certainly are. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so like the, the I think the the thing that hits people the hardest, I think, when I talk about this with my students is that like so someone will often bring up the is Google actually always listening or is it not? Because like I'll say something about some product and it'll show up in my Facebook feed. And I'm like, no, the scary thing is they're probably not listening to you when you say it, but other things you're doing are enough of a trigger for them to yeah, already know like that. what yeah. you're looking for on the internet yeah, so it's and se- what you're watching on TV. So it seems like they're spying on you and they are, but not via the that device that you thought. Well, I think people would be very interested to know that like really these companies, they don't need a lot of data points to get kind of a clear understanding of who you are. I mean, I'm a, a, a white male college age. Well, I guess not anymore. Oh my goodness. Um, but there's a basic understanding of what somebody like me is going to buy and it tracks. I mean, I love indie music and it's like, all right, I'm getting indie music. I'm a white guy who loves indie music. I love podcasts. I work in a food truck. I mean, I'm yeah. the white guy. Yeah. We sort of don't, re- we, we think of ourselves as so such unique individuals, but it turns out once mm-hmm. you put me in a bucket, <laughs> yeah. One, you know, one of my colleagues uh, came at us and she says to the useful to think about AI, like, like Sherlock Holmes, like it can notice a smudge on your cheek and figure out that you committed a murder or whatever. And it doesn't take much data for it to sort of piece together a story. Mm -hmm. That's partly because they don't need much data anymore because they have a ton of it um, (laughs) already. Yeah. Uh, Before we move on, myself and Water Cooler Talk have embarked on a mission to give back to various parts of the community and those who have helped build our show to where it stands today. For each new episode of the podcast, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. And on the day of their episode going live, 
Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to that charity in honor of the guest, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. And we invite you listening to this episode to join in to help spread that message to your own personal audience. John, your charity of choice for today's episode is nrdc.org. Could you share with us the significance of their work, especially within the environmental sector, and why they're a good fit for our conversation today. Yeah, that's the National Resource Defense Council. They're an environmental charity. They they do lobbying and advocacy to combat climate change and both global and local environmental challenges. Um, I chose them because uh, among the most existential risks we face is the risk of climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it seems like there are lots of charities worthy of, of support. But for me, this is, you know, trying to tackle climate change is a big is a big deal. Um I couldn't think of any AI related charities where I thought my money would be as useful as, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, if we don't have an earth yeah, to live yeah. on it, it doesn't matter what AI that, does. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so let's, let's keep the environment around long enough for the AI to kill us. That's, that's why that, there that's you, why, I, that's I, why I like the NRDC. It. Yeah. <laughs> well, all right, John, you're ready to jump into our uh, final news story of the episode. Yeah, you bet. This is from ARS Technica Unlocked, written by Andrew Cunningham, May 3rd, 2023. Google will retire Chrome's HTTPS padlock icon because no one knows what it means. One of the biggest advances in web security over the last decade or so is the proliferation of secure encrypted HTTPS connections. Once the purview of shopping and banking sites, HTTPS connections have become the norm rather than the exception. Keeping more of your credentials and data safe from being intercepted, even when you're on public or insecure networks. Um, in the spirit of the episode, here's an AI explaining HTTPS. HTTPS is like a special envelope for the internet. When you visit a website using HTTPS, it's like sending and receiving information in a locked envelope. It keeps your personal information safe and private, so nobody can read or change it. It's like having a secret code that only the website and your computer understand. This way, you can feel safer when using the internet. Browsers going all the way back to Internet Explorer, a blast from the past, man, have used a small padlock icon to denote that a connection is using HTTPS and is secure. But according to the team behind Chromium Browser Engine, most people, 89%, still have misconceptions about the padlock's meaning. Uh, And once again, for transparency, this was from an online survey done from 1,880 individuals. Because of the confusion, the padlock icon is slated to be retired for Chrome 117 this September. A blog post from the Chrome security team reads, Replacing the lock icon with a neutral indicator prevents the misunderstanding that the lock icon is associated with the trustworthiness of a page, and emphasizes that security should be the default state in Chrome. In the desktop version of Chrome, the padlock icon will be replaced by a tune icon, a couple of circles and a couple of lines meant to represent the toggle switches you encounter in many settings screens. Clicking the tune icon will give you extra information about the site's HTTPS certificate, plus a few other site-specific settings like those for notifications and location sharing. Uh, These are all things you can access by clicking the padlock icon in current versions of Chrome, so the lock icon will change, but but the icon's functionality will remain the same. The change is especially important because of the Chromium engine's current dominance. 
Chrome accounts for about two-thirds of the internet usage and including Chromium-based browsers like Microsoft Edge, which ugh, and Opera brings the total usage closer to 80%. For better or worse, changes by Google tend to become the default. So expect most Chromium-based browsers plus alternatives like Safari and Firefox, Team Firefox, to make similar changes. And before we move on to clear any confusion, Chromium serves as the foundational code that's uh, developed by Google. Um, so John, I've noticed on your website, johnbasil.net, you don't have a secure connection. You don't have this icon lock. Is that purposeful or is that something I just stumbled across that you're not even aware of? No, no, I'm aware of it. I get yelled at by my web host provider every once in a while about it. Um, <laughs> Uh, the truth is the software I used to build the website was an internal piece of software. It was not eligible for HTTPS cert certificates, and I haven't had the time to fix my website. I do really think it's important to, to have an HTTPS certificate, but only because it trades on the, a misconception that like people get a warning when they try to go to my website, mm -hmm. which is the only reason I want to have a certificate. Because <laughs> um, there's no, con there's no, I don't collect any information on my website, including emails. So there's no real reason why it has to be. Um, HTTPS secure. Um, I'm sure that some cybersecurity person will tell me I'm wrong, but it's not <laughs> It's not a problem from the other person's perspective, hopefully. Uh, so it just needs fixing. Fair enough. Uh, you mentioned to me the importance of developing, I mean, as we've been kind of talking about this episode, the ethics ecosystem for managing the social and ethical challenges raised by AI and big data analytics. And so to that, how big of a role does education and technological literacy have in creating that ecosystem? I think in this in this case, it's extreme. So there are there are places where there are ethics ecosystems that don't have huge public outreach components, and I think that's fine for them. Others, you need more public outreach, and this is a case where I think it's extremely important that the public have some literacy um, to take the topic far away from HTTPS, like. There's an important difference between the traditional way we build programs and machine learning um, and understanding that difference is really important to certain ethical questions. Like so in autonomous vehicle ethics, the main thing that's been in the media is what should these cars do in crash scenarios? Yep. The trolley situation. that you Yeah, the trolley case. Yeah. So philosophers for the first time ever were starting to get phone calls. People were asking our opinions on these trolley cases involving autonomous vehicles. But what what like the media attention did was sort of cement this idea that what we're doing is programming vehicles that behave in particular ways in these scenarios. Mm -hmm. But that's not how they're built. They use machine learning, which means it's more like training a dog, like where you repeat an activity over and over and hope it internalizes what you want it to do. Kind of like nurture compared to nurture versus nature or is that no the wrong uh, way to, is that me putting human you know philosophy onto machine well i don't know that that it's so much that it's it's that um that nature is not always hard coded either but it's not a bad way to think about it like some things are okay. like we can hard code like imagine you could just like wire up your dog's brain so that anytime you said sit it put its butt on the ground okay but that's not what we do instead we give it a reward when it sits but the thing about machine learning is training for one scenario can make it better or worse at another scenario. And so when you're thinking about what you're actually doing when you build AI, you're training an algorithm to work across a diverse range of scenarios. And so fixating on one, especially one that's very unlikely to come up, can make it worse at other things. So the ethical question is, how do I build a machine that's going to function across all the driving scenarios that it's going to be a part of? Not how do I make sure it does this specific thing in this specific accident scenario? Mm -hmm. um, and even just getting people to see that like, what, how do you get a car? How do you get a car to recognize when it's in a trolley case would mean training it on a bunch of trolley cases. Um, you could use synthetic data or otherwise you got to set up a racetrack with a bunch of babies and strollers <laughs> on it. Like just getting people to see what's involved in building these systems can get them to see 
this is not the ethical issue I should fixate on. Yeah. There are other important ethical issues to fixate on. Well, like, how do we, I mean, I've always viewed, and correct me if I'm wrong, I've always viewed ethics as, like, there's no clear definition of right and wrong. It's what we, in the current time period, believe to be right and wrong. I mean, like, something like slavery, yeah, like, 100, 200, 300 years ago, slavery was like, oh, it's, you know, it's not that bad. But now we look at it, I mean, maybe not modern-day slavery, but we look at it as like, oh, that was bad. Um, you know, I had the one class I did take at Yale was the ethics of, you know, kind of everyday life. And they had this example of the disgust scale. And so the the prompt was, you know, a brother and a sister have sex, they, you know, use protection, uh, there's no risk of, you know, having a baby, if you're worried about that, it can be brother, brother. But what they're doing is technically fine. But because of how we view incestuous relationships, the ethics and morality of that situation change based on how we view it. Is that something similar to when we're trying to putting together these ethical committees to talk about what this ecosystem looks like. So there's a lot there. So, so I think I, I want to push back against the idea that it's just a function. It's true that our disgust can make us, we can confuse being disgusted by something with our concepts of right and wrong because they're both okay. wrongness is a sort of negative connotation and so does is disgust is obviously negative. Um, and so we can do those things. But sometimes we come to be disgusted by things because we think they're wrong and not the other way around. Oh, interesting. Uh, like I think this happens with lots of vegetarians, for example. Like a lot of people convert to vegetarianism on the basis of arguments and then they come to find meat repulsive because they think it's wrong. But I also think there's an important difference between sort of our thinking, not thinking slavery is wrong, but it still being wrong. So yeah, that's a good point, because there were people that were very against it in the time period. It was very popular here in the US. But even if they weren't, like if we think it was progress, if we think we made moral progress by abolishing slavery, we're admitting that there's an independent standard that we're living up to. Mm-hmm. If we ju- if it was just a matter of opinion, all that happened is we got different. Um, but I think most of us wouldn't reflectively say that we got different. We got better. Um, and that suggests there's a standard that's not just popular opinion. And I think we think that about most things. Like, uh, we, we you don't get heated about things like what's... We we could probably get in a fight about what the best cookie is. It's it's Oreos. <laughs> um, we could get in a fight about that. I, I, I think it's oatmeal raisin and a lot of people hate <laughs> oh, me for man. it. So I, I won't even, I might cut that out from the episode. Yeah, okay. I might bleep it out what I say. Yeah, okay. That's probably a safe bet for you. Um, we could get in a fight about that in some sense, but it wouldn't be acrimonious if we disagree as if we disagreed about abortion or something okay. like that. Yes. Okay. That's a good, that's a very good explanation. That person that says you're good looking was right. Thanks. Uh, yeah. So people, I mean, people do fall into this trap of thinking that ethics is just about a matter of opinion, but I think there are better and worse arguments. It's true that it's it's very difficult to come to a consensus, mm-hmm. um, but that's true in like the cutting edge of all of our sciences as well. That doesn't mean there's not a fact of the matter or better answers and worse answers. Um, and so coming back to the, the, the topic, I think that like one thing that's happening here is that, yes, people are falling into the trap of thinking about these these um even if you think that ethics is largely a matter of opinion, which which most philosophers don't, people are fixating on this one ethical question about what should the car do when it's a different ethical question that they should even be having a disagreement about. And there you might get resolutions that tell them something about these discrete scenarios. But people don't see that because they don't understand how the technologies work. Yeah. And this was the same. This is the same with the um, Apple, Google COVID tracking app and many other applications. So like understanding how these tools work can increase their acceptance. Well, yeah. And I know you've talked a lot about like pretty much when we're talking about technology and like what they are in the ethics. I mean, it's, it's like everyone's speaking a different language, you know, and then now we're trying to create these, these standards to give to the public, you know, this HTTPS hypertext transfer protocol secure thing. And there's 
five, 10 different ways that people are describing it, they're talking about it. And so the public who's not as aware of, you know, these industries might not have the knowledge and the experience that others do is like, what the heck are you guys talking about? You know, there has, but there has to be the standard if we're going to educate the public and make this accessible to them that it's just not there yet. Yeah. Going back to the thing you were talking about with bias and AI and things like that, like there are people that work on a, a like a thing that they mean like fair AI and they mean something very specific and technical by it. And if you told someone, hey, I show I can show that this AI is fair. What that's going to mean to the public is something very it's not not actually what they think of as fairness. Yeah. Um, and so you have these problems that like the language we use, like to say this website is secure means something very different to most of the public than it does to the people that use that word when they talk about HTTPS. Yeah. And it's, so it's, it's right that Google's right or Chromium is right to retire the thing because it conveys the false impression. But the real answer has to be enough literacy um, amongst the public so that they can navigate some of this jargon. And that means also some reduction of jargon or much more care with how we portray these, these ideas. When I think that is, I mean, obviously these companies, Google, Apple, the whole lot of them, Facebook, um, Meta, I guess what it's called now, I do think they do hold some responsibility of making sure that they're conveying information that is in a way accessible to the masses. But I also think we as consumers and individuals and voters have a right and a responsibility to hold these companies to these ethical standards that we want to hold them to. Because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, an educated uh, people, you know, they vote in representatives that are hopefully educated, and you can hold those representatives accountable to say, hey, if you don't know about this stuff, you need to learn about it, or I'm going to vote for someone else next November. Yeah, it. I, there's a, a deep sense in which I, I agree with that. At the same time, like we're so invested in these technologies, like there there are sort of gateways to important resources for us. And so it's hard for us to give them up even when they're not being like. So it, one thing we it's hard to do is consumer advocacy by saying like, well, I'm just not going to use Gmail or Facebook. Yeah. Um, that's that's like a serious co- that can come at serious cost. And then the challenge with representatives is that um, it's hard to find a representative that's going to represent all your interests. And so you're often making compromises across these things. And often the representatives, they're basically about the level of public competency in terms of some <laughs> technologies. So it's a, it's a, it's a really hard problem. No. And I do, I, I know you've talked about this example of the development of independent oversight for embryonic stem cell research and application, you know, outside of government regulation. And so I do think that there are these things that uh, we can do outside of having to wait for the government to kind of catch up. I mean, most of the government, I think what the average age of our U.S. government is 60 plus, I mean, which is ridiculous. The average age for our most recent Congress is 58 years old. Yeah, but it, it's I mean, it's like a trident. You got to hit it from like, you know, multiple different angles. Yes. I mean, the angle for me and what the show does is education and making sure people are aware and informed because like going back to that uh, conversation we had with 14 and 15 year olds working at McDonald's in Kentucky. I mean, if it wasn't for like the mine acts of 1842, children would still be working in coal mines. Mm-hmm. But because we realized that this isn't ethical. The companies don't care, right? They just care about that. You know, I I would like to think that most companies care about the ethics of making money. But at the end of the day, they have a job to shareholders to make more and more and more money plus X, you know, every year. And so the fact that we have to have these laws that say, hey, yeah, uh, 10 year old kids probably shouldn't be working in coal mines, because otherwise they would. Yeah, That's right. Yeah, I think the Trident point is exactly right. And we have to educate the public enough so they can take meaningful action so that even if here's the thing, like if you even if we created meaningful oversight boards, 
the companies only have an incentive to follow their guidelines if the public cares about them yes. for the exact reason you mentioned. So it's like, this is the point about the ecosystem lacking even just one component and things sort of fall apart. So you can do everything right, but if the public doesn't understand and so can't take advantage of the sort of new incentive structure to get these companies to do the right thing, they're not going to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, it's, it's, I sadly feel like it's just a matter of time before Facebook, who has set up this external oversight board, just decides to not follow their recommendations because it's just not in their interest. It's currently in their interest to have an arbiter make objective decisions so they don't have to take the responsibility for them. But eventually it's not going to be in their interest to do so. And it's going to be really interesting to see what happens when when those two things come apart or misalign. And I kind of want to get into this kind of just real quick because, I mean, I don't know too much about it. I don't know your knowledge in it. But like, how have you how have you seen how like different countries go about regulating technology. I mean, I know the European Union might be a little tougher. I know what's going on with Germany and Twitter, but the US, I mean, we're trying to decide if we should ban TikTok. And it seems like, you know, obviously as a first world country, we're kind of behind the ball in what other countries are doing to make sure uh, uh, people are safe online, to make sure it's regulated. I mean, I know in France, there's uh, very strict laws on, you know, like revenge porn and, you know, those kind of things and using fake images of people. I know there's this recent story about this girl who had never put a nude photo online, but through, you know, these AI uh, imaging oh, creators, yeah. she was able to be defraked and, I mean, absolutely heartbroken by yeah. it. And it feels like we're kind of behind the ball. So have you noticed, uh, or at least what have you noticed, in your opinion, the difference between how we handle it here in the U.S. and how other countries handle regulations when it comes to this crazy advancement. Yeah, I'm most familiar with the EU and the US context. And even in the EU, I'm not that I'm not like a legal scholar. But I would say this, there's a certain sense in which like the GDPR, which was the main thing doing the work for a while that we're we're getting new regulations now was like a step in the right direction. It meant to take meaningful steps to try to slow or to to put constraints on on, on technologies. The GDPR, which is the General Data Protection Regulation, is a regulation in EU law on data protection and privacy in the European economic arena, which most recently hit Meta with a $1.3 billion fine for violations. At the same time, it wasn't extremely sensitive to the actual nature of the technologies. So for example, there was a provision that said something like, people have a right to understand how deci- the, the decision logic of the systems that make decisions about them. So what, if, I'm, if I'm using a credit, if you apply for a credit card, you have a right to understand the logic that approves or denies you or something like that. Yes. Well, that's actually pretty trivial to satisfy for an AI, even if you use machine learning. Like we know that we know the, the logic that it's used to we use to train it. Yep. And so things are getting more nuanced there. Whereas here, it just feels like so gridlocked and we're not getting much progress in the regulatory space. Now, we did get the AI Bill of Rights from which is is sort of, I would say, aspirational. Um, And a lot of it looks pretty good to me. If we can actually, this is the thing, every company, every, everybody wants to list out these principles and values. Like, so we want fair AI, we want uh, transparent AI. The real work is putting the meat on those bones in a way that's actually sensitive to how the technologies work and the context they'll be used. And we haven't seen as much progress there. And and I don't see much going on in the United States regulatory world to advance that. Well, yeah, it's like even, you know, the AI Bill of Rights that the, the Biden administration put out, I think there's like five or six like key tenets that um, they want to talk about. And I was reading through and I was like, this is confusing language. It's I mean, like we've been saying as far as like it, it's 
I think there needs to be a better understanding of, first off, understanding what the heck it is. Because, I mean, I'm sure as you know, as a teacher and a professor, I mean, to really understand a topic, the best way to understand a topic is teach a topic. And I think we're just missing the ball here and there and everywhere when it comes to really understanding what's going on. And we're just kind of just throwing shit at the wall and hope something sticks. But we're going to get to a point where it might be too late. And hopefully that point doesn't come. But, you know, yeah, you hope for the best, but, you, you know, you have to expect the worst. Absolutely. Yeah. One of my, when people ask me, like I was asked, like, what's your nightmare scenario with respect to sort of AI ethics regulation and management? And I think my answer was something like in every other case where we have meaningful regulation, except the case of escrow committees, uh, the embryonic stem cell committees, <laughs> it was because some horrible ethical, unethical thing happened. Yes. And then we removed to act. Given what's already happened with AI, I'm not I'm not sure what a horrible thing would have to happen for us to actually regulate it. We've already seen like the undermining of democracy. We see people manipulated by online advertisements. We see people's attention getting destroyed by the attention economy. And that hasn't been like the harms of these tools are so are often so distributed or distant from us. It's sort of like climate change. It's like they the, the harms and the problems feel far away. They're collective problems. It doesn't feel like we can make a difference. And so we're just less motivated to sort of do something about it. Yeah, it is so interesting that, I mean, you would hope that these big things and horrible things that happen make change, but it's just not in the same way. I mean, my A-Push... Uh, AP history teacher would be so proud that I remember the shi- the triangle shirt factory uh, a fire that caused the changes there. I was so close, Miss Colbert. So close. So close. <laughs> it was the triangle shirt waist factory fire. But it's like, I just don't feel like we're having those same changes that we once did. And it's really interesting to, I think, to do really a deep dive on understanding on why, yeah. like why, I mean, I, that's not a question. I'm not asking you that. I'm asking it to the universe. Why universe? Why? Uh, but like why we're not making those changes that we have in the past. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. That's a great question. And you know, it's so bound up with all of like our current political moment and there's never been less trust across the aisle. Mm-hmm. So like there's a huge number of contributing factors besides the harms just being distributed and hard to sort of sort of pitch to the average person about like why we really need strict regulation of these things. Um, there's lots of regulatory capture, just like a lot of lobbyists and tech has a lot of money. Yep. So it's, it's a multifaceted, very difficult problem. And it does require sort of untangling, like you say, piece by piece, because we got to do something about it before too long. Yeah. Well, John, I want to thank you for the time, uh, your time and engaging in productive and meaningful conversation. And as well as sharing your perspective on some of the strangest and most bizarre news stories the world has to offer. Listeners, if you would like to support and follow along on John's journey to figure out the ethics of AI, you can do so by heading to his website, johnbasil.net, which uh, he's, he's told us transparency is not going to steal your data, or by finding him on the social network Mastodon at John Basil. Once again, the name of the website, just his name, johnbasil.net, or on Mastodon at John Basil. And as always, uh, and Basil is spelled B-A-S-L, by the way, if you're if you need to know. And as always, those links will be included in the description of this episode and on our podcast website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. Um, so something that seems kind of a final question here, something that seems to be a vital point in building a healthy and ethical future for AI um, is the obvious aspect of transparency. And to that point, what are your thoughts on companies and individuals ensuring com- this quote unquote complete transparency in the, the data that's being given for machine learning 
And on the backside of that, the importance of transparency in the feedback and improvement process of training and updating AI. Yeah, that's a great and complicated question. I didn't come to answer hard questions. No, I'm just that's why, that's yeah. why that's why I kept it to the yeah, very great. last. <laughs> I think transparency can mean a lot of things, and I think we often get fixated on a single meaning and demand very different things. So I think it's important to enable auditing opportunities, and that's one meaning of transparency. Mm-hmm. It's also important to explain why we make the decisions we do. So sometimes we might rely on a model or tool that's really hard to understand because it's so complicated and we couldn't can't even explain it to ourselves but if we can say here's the value we get from relying on it for this use that's a different kind of transparency it's being plain about our reasons for using something that's otherwise not transparent and so i think there is a real reason to be transparent in a lot of different senses Um, and we just have to ask about the different contexts that we're in what's the appropriate kind of transparency what do we care about given all the values we have how much do we need to be transparent about You know, it's the case that it'd be great if the government could be transparent about every person they're tracking, but it would undermine the value of surveillance. And sometimes surveillance is legitimate. So so I don't know if ultimate perfect transparency doesn't seem like the right aim to me. And it's a question of when does transparency serve the things we actually care about? And I think also to add on to your point, I think there is an importance on who's holding that transparency and our trust of them. I mean, are there aliens? Have aliens visited Earth? I mean, and does the government know that? And does the government know? I mean, obviously, this is kind of a ridiculous example, but does the government know that aliens have visited Earth and they know that if they told us chaos would ensue and so they're holding that information i think that is a valid form of not being transparent because you know you're looking for the best idea of uh the majority but i want the people holding that button to be trustworthy and uh, of viable solutions and how do we you know discover if they're trustworthy if they're not transparent so it's like this double-edged sword that it's not an easy yes, no, black, white kind of answer. Yeah, that's right. There's this uh, just I'll be very quick about this. There's this is really cool paper by a philosopher named T. Wynn on called Transparency is Surveillance. And one of his points is that sometimes being transparent removes the possibility of expertise, because when an expert has to explain something, they have to translate it out of the yes, language of their expertise into something you can understand. And so like you're basically making it accessible by not actually by hiding the real reasons. Cause the real reason is something bound up in their expertise. Um, and he's got this whole paper about how, what the, how this relates to bureaucracy and things like that. It's a great paper. I like it. You'll have to send me that one. Um, all right. As always, thank you to all my listeners for tuning into another episode of water cooler talk podcast. The only such podcast on the internet. This is a fun fact here, John hosted by myself and guest hosted today by you, uh, where we take the strangest and most interesting real life news story from around the world. And we'll just try and have a good old conversation about some of the ideas discussed in those bizarre real news stories. John, we are now to my favorite part of the show where I get to hand off my beloved and treasured piece of conversational art to you to close it out and perfectly conclude our conversation. But before doing so, and in the spirit of this episode um, and what we've discussed today, I have a few laws for you to follow. Three to be exact. The first law, Your conclusion may not injure a human being or, through an action, allow a human being to come to harm. Second law, your conclusion must obey the orders given to it by the human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. And the oh-so-famous third law, your conclusion must protect its own existence as long as it's such as long as such protections does not conflict with the first or second law. So, in the famous words of Asimov, to challenge the idea that science gathers knowledge faster than society gathers wisdom, can you please show him up a little bit and give us society the the wisdom we so 
dearly need to close this show. That's a hard ask, but I, I, I'll, I'll close by saying I'm really grateful to all the listeners. I really do think it's important that people become informed about these issues and that we all have a role to play in trying to manage the ethical challenges raised by emerging technologies. Um, the more interested and engaged people can be about these technologies, the more they can understand them, the more they can advocate for themselves and a better future for all of us. And so I, I hope listeners will take that seriously and um, do their part. Yeah, no, uh, John, I very much appreciate you being on the show today. I know you're a busy guy, but I appreciate you being able to take the time out of your day to have this conversation and to have it in such a fun and great way. I mean, this this person from Rate My Professor, they gave you a 4.8 out of 5, which I think, come on, come on, get, just give it the 5. Uh, but they're right. I mean, you're, you're really good at this. You truly understand what you're talking about. And like I mentioned, it's so important uh, when we have these type of conversations to really understand what you're saying, because the amount of information that's shared across the internet and is available every day in our pocket is so massive that uh, we need good people telling good information to create a good future. So I appreciate you being able to come on the show today. Well, thank you so much. That's that's very kind. And, and I, I really appreciate it. Uh, listeners, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, the show will be over. Peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. <laughs> <laughs> 